Father, today we rejoice in your salvation. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. We rejoice in our adoption and our transformation. We rejoice in your Son. We rejoice in your eternal Son. Your eternal Word made incarnate, made flesh through the Holy Spirit to be our representative and Savior. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to obey for us, to suffer for us, to be justified and vindicated for us. We know all he did, he did for us and as us in our place. And this is our hope. And so, Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his cup, his cross, his crown, the cup of the kingdom he gave to us the cross on which He suffered for us, the crown He now wears as He rules over all for our good. Help us, hear us, and defend us by Your grace, O God. May we be where You are, entering Your heavenly sanctuary this day to enjoy Your love, to bask in Your glory, to receive Your gifts of life and wisdom. Revive us that we may not be strangers to Your holiness, but may be cleansed and equipped for the battles You call us to fight. Oh Lord, help us to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mature us and make us like the Savior, like the Lord Jesus. We praise You and adore You, O great God. For You are enthroned in glory and enwrapped in light. You are the true God who smashes the foolish idols of our hearts. You spread Your kingdom, restoring all creation and making all things new. Oh Lord, show us mercy this day. O Heavenly Father, with Your Son and the Holy Spirit, the Eternal Trinity. Amen. For our lesson of the day, we are back in James chapter 2. I will read the first 13 verses. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but you do, you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would speak truth to us this day, that you would fill our hearts not just with a knowledge of your truth, but a love of your truth and of your justice and of your mercy. 
Father, we pray that these things would be reflected in our lives and in our church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in this section in James for a second week because there is so much here to cover and so much that is, uh, I think, very relevant to our current uh, cultural and political circumstances. I think James has a great deal of wisdom for us in our day. In this section of his letter, James is addressing the sin of partiality. And it is important to understand why he condemns partiality. He builds up several reasons over the course of this text. He says in verse 1, partiality contradicts our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus. You can't hold the faith in this glorious Lord Jesus and practice partiality. Jesus was no respecter of persons. He didn't determine how to treat people on the basis of their wealth or their status or their skin color. Jesus didn't play favorites on the basis of some kind of worldly standing. He was the great leveler, lifting up the poor and downcast while bringing down the prideful and mighty. We see Jesus never judged people in superficial ways or by merely external features. No, Jesus always judged injustice and inequity. Jesus held everybody to the exact same standard of his word, his own law. And so James is saying that his followers, that is, those who trust in this glorious Lord Jesus, must practice the same. We must practice the same way of life. Like our master, we must not play favorites. We can't be given over to bias or partiality. We're to treat everyone with love. Because after all, every person is loved by God. If God loves the person, how can I not? Every human is made in God's image, and therefore every human has certain God-given rights. We should honor these truths. They trace back to Jesus himself. Partiality violates our faith in Jesus. But it's not just that partiality violates our faith. It also violates the law. Verses 8 and 9 show us that partiality is a violation of the royal law. Now, why does he call it the royal law? We've talked about James' uh, theology of the law already, but this must be the law of King Jesus. And so if you show partiality, you're not just violating the law of Moses, that's certainly true, but the law of Christ as well. Moses was not a king, so his law cannot be considered a royal law. Uh, The law must be the law of Christ, the law of Christ's kingdom. The law is taught by Christ. The law is transformed by Christ, as we've already seen in this letter. Partiality violates that law because law, the law calls for love. And love fulfills the law. And partiality is unloving. Partiality is a form of injustice. James says if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And further, James points out that the law is a unity. Lest anyone think that they can fulfill other requirements of the law but get away with violating this one, James says, no, the law is a unity. The law is like a pass-fail test. And if you get even one question wrong, if you stumble at even one point, then you have violated the whole law. You have failed the law test. That's what James says. In James chapter 3, he'll say we all stumble in many ways. So we're all sinners. We're all lawbreakers in that sense. Uh, Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. Paul brings that forward in Galatians 3 to show we are all lawbreakers. James here is reminding us the law is a totality. The law is a unity. And that's why we can't pick and choose. 
why we can't pick and choose among God's law. If we keep some commandments but not others, that doesn't cut it. That, that's, not, uh, that's not the way it works. If we keep other commandments but practice partiality, we are law breakers. So James establishes that partiality is a problem. It violates our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It violates the law He gave to us. Partiality is a problem. It was a problem in James' day. It's a problem in our day. Partiality is evil. It is a sin. But it's also important to know exactly what this sin of partiality is. What does it mean to show partiality? After all, there are some forms of what you could call partiality that are inescapable and not wrong and perhaps even called for in Scripture. So, for example, I'm partial to my wife and kids. I do things for my kids that I don't do for other people's kids. Uh, there are a lot of forms of partiality in daily life that are unavoidable and that aren't sinful. Inevitably, you will be closer to some people than to others. You'll have some people you're better friends with than others. That's simply an aspect of friendship. You cannot be equally close with every single person in the church or in your neighborhood or in the world. It just doesn't work that way. And Scripture shows us again and again that our obligations are especially concentrated on those who are closest to us. Closest to us in our family or in our church or even geographically. You might call that a kind of partiality, but if so, it's not a sinful partiality. I mean, even Jesus seemed to be closer to Peter, James, and John than to the other disciples. And the very fact that He chose twelve disciples shows that he, you could say, practiced a kind of partiality, a kind of partiality that is not sinful. Our relationships with one another, our obligations towards one another will vary. We do things for some people we don't do for others. That's just how life is. That's part of our calling. So what then exactly is being forbidden here? What does it mean to show partiality? There are certainly ways of showing sinful partiality in daily life. Discriminating, say, on the basis of race would be one that we, we, we talked about uh, before. But I think there's actually something very specific going on here in James chapter 2. I want you to note the context. I pointed this out last week, but I want to develop it a little bit more. The context is clearly that of a law court. In verse 6, he says, the rich have dragged you into court. The rich drag the poor into court. It has to do with a court, showing partiality in a court. Verse 4, he says, if you show partiality, you have become evil judges. He's speaking to them as judges and their capacity as mediators or arbiters of a dispute. The context suggests what is especially in view is what you might call judicial partiality. Partiality in a court. Specifically, we could say showing favoritism in a church court. I introduced this last week, but I want to develop it here a little bit more and build on it this week. The church has courts. That's something you need to know uh, about the church. The church has a judicial aspect. We, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 6 that I read for us this morning. Paul tells the Corinthian Christians they should not take one another to civil court. They should not be going to the Roman courts where they will be judged by a pagan, by an unbeliever. He says, no, find a wise man in your congregation who can judge between you. Christians shouldn't be going to secular or pagan civil courts to get their disputes, their 
in-house disputes settled. They should use the church's court system. And I think that's what James has in view here. James has in view church members who are not doing what the Corinthians did and going before pagan judges. They're going before church judges. But when they go to court within the church, their judges are judging their cases with partiality. See, pastors and elders have to act as judges at times. This is one of the things we do. We're called to settle disputes, to make judgments about people's standing and about uh, their actions or about their faith. We can't judge the heart. Only God can judge that. But there are all kinds of external things we are called to make judgments about, things that are observable or accessible by us. And James, along with the rest of Scripture, says when you make these kinds of judgments, you have to do so in a way that is righteous and equitable and impartial. And in saying this, James is really just echoing the Torah. He's echoing the law of Moses. The Old Testament forbids partiality in numerous places. And this is really important to what James is saying. When the Old Testament forbids partiality, it is always in the context of a law court. It always has to do with a law court setting. Specifically, judges are warned about showing favoritism in court. And so Exodus 23.3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Don't let the poor man tug on your heartstrings and then judge in his favor because he's poor. Now, when James illustrates partiality, he gives the example of showing partiality to the rich against the poor. But note that the law also forbids showing partiality towards the poor. You could go either way in showing partiality. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the rich. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Leviticus. Who's Leviticus written for? It's written for the Levites. It's written for the priests. They're going to be the pastors in Israel. And when they judge cases... The book of Leviticus says they must not be partial in any direction. They must judge every case the same according to the law. The righteous judge has no bias, no prejudice, no favoritism. We read Deuteronomy chapter 1 this morning where Moses gives instructions to judges. And he says, do not show partiality. Allow both small and great to be heard in court. Do not fear any man's presence for judgment is God's. Moses is saying to these who will judge these matters in Israel, who will act as judges in Israel, you're God's representatives. Your judgment should reflect God's judgment. God judges without partiality. You must too. Fear no man in your court. Fear God in your court. God is the one who will ultimately render judgment. Your judgments should reflect His. You must judge the way God does without partiality. So James is echoing these Old Testament laws. No partiality is to be shown in the courts of the church. The courts of the church should be places of judicial justice, uh, places of equity. Everyone is under the same law, and everyone is to be judged by the same standard. Now, I would guess that we all agree on that. I would guess that what I've said uh, thus far is not very controversial, that church courts should be fair and just and impartial, and church courts should be, uh, frankly, utilized much more than they are to settle disputes among believers, as Paul uh, is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I mentioned last week that there have been times in the history of the church 
particularly if you go back to the early church, when it wasn't just Christians bringing their cases before Christian pastors and elders to be settled, but actually pagans would start to bring their cases before Christian pastors and elders to get their cases resolved because the Roman courts had been so corrupted. Roman judges were so susceptible to bribery and to corruption that even the Romans themselves said, we can't get justice in our civil courts. We're going to go to the church. We know there are impartial judges to be found there. It's possible something similar will happen in our nation. Possible something similar is even happening in our nation. It's important to understand that in the West, what we think of as Western civilization, that our court system is being corrupted today, but it's important to understand that while civil justice seems to be eroding, historically, our court system has been largely shaped and influenced by the Bible, by the teaching of the Scripture, by the Christian faith. Uh, our system of civil courts has been greatly influenced by the Scripture. Christian principles have been woven into our system of law, our jurisprudence, the common law tradition uh, that's had such an impact on our own nation and, and, and other Western nations. That whole image that we have of Lady Justice with a blindfold over her eyes, that's really a Christian contribution to the history of law. Equity before the law, the rule of law even over kings, so even kings are held accountable to the law. Due process, so both the great and the small get to state their case before the court and cross-examine one another. Universal human rights and dignity. All of these things trace back to the Scriptures and to the influence of the Christian faith. They're not religiously neutral. They didn't come from paganism or some other religion. They are specifically contributions of the Christian faith. But sadly, our judicial system is departing from these principles in some places. Uh, I think this is largely due in our day to what has been called identity politics. Is this a term you're familiar with, identity politics? Some of you may know that term, some not. But I think as I start to talk about it, you'll understand or you'll see how it is uh, very influential in our culture today. Identity politics is driven by what is sometimes called cultural Marxism or critical theory. And in this philosophy of law, the goal in a court case is not justice, but a preferred outcome. In other words, the law is adjusted to fulfill a social agenda. And the state, which we expect to be a fair referee, becomes a biased referee, and courts become about power rather than justice. Courts are driven by an ideology rather than, uh, rather than the application of justice. And this is what I think we're seeing in our own day. In the Christian view, there is to be no partiality. The law is colorblind, sex-blind, income-blind. Rich and poor, men and women, black and white are all treated the same before the law. Not so in identity politics. In identity politics, if a person belongs to a favored group, they will receive preferential treatment in court. If they are part of a group that has experienced some kind of oppression in the past, they get privileged treatment. But that is exactly the kind of partiality that James and Moses forbid. Again, the goal of law should be justice and equality, not enacting an ideologically driven agenda. It should be equality for the law. That's some kind of preferred outcome. 
And so biblically, every case has to be adjudicated by the law according to the facts of that particular case. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have read the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Hopefully everybody who's grown up in Alabama has read To Kill a Mockingbird. Classic work, one of my favorites. If you haven't read it, uh, don't tell me. Uh, just go read it because I'd be so embarrassed. Uh, but uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, okay? Maybe you know the story. Uh, as soon as Tom's case goes to trial, you know ahead of time he's going to be convicted because what do you have here? You have a black man accused of raping a white woman. And it happens in a racist community. And so despite the best efforts, the, the, the valiant efforts, the noble efforts of Atticus Finch, his lawyer, despite all the evidence that clearly points to his innocence, he is convicted of this crime. It is not a just trial. The court is full of partiality. Okay. That was identity politics in America circa early 20th century. There's no way Tom, as a black man, was going to get a fair trial when accused of something by a white woman. Identity politics essentially dictates the verdict ahead of time before the facts are even known based on who the participants in the case are. But we're seeing identity politics of a different sort emerge in our day, where different demographic groups are treated differently on the basis of their group identity. And so some groups are demonized and others are valorized. Some are always condemned, others are always justified. Identity politics says we ought to show partiality towards certain groups. The dream of identity politics is a world where everyone is judged not on the content of their character, but by the color of their skin, their sex, or their income. But we have to see and we have to say that is not justice. Justice doesn't care what demographic you belong to. Justice only cares about the law and the facts of the case. So here, here's an example of this working its way out in our culture. White policeman shoots young black man. What does our media immediately do with a case like that? Before any of the other relevant facts are even known, much of our media has already declared guilt and innocence. Because there's a certain narrative and a preferred outcome. And certain, in terms of those participants in the case, some are preferred and others not. Or take this. This is this. This goes a little further afield, but I think it's a it's, a, it's another example of this kind of thing. The, the the Brett Kavanaugh hearings before the Senate to confirm him as a as a Supreme Court justice. I don't want to re-adjudicate the whole thing in a sermon. I just want to point this out. You know, I had women who accused him of some kind of impropriety many years before. And what was interesting to me, and I quite honestly didn't follow the case all that closely, but what was interesting to me is how many people were willing to jump to a conclusion and condemn this man simply because he was a man before the facts were even known. I'm not saying he's innocent or guilty, but I'm saying people were making judgments before the facts were even known. You've heard a mantra like, believe all women. Okay, well, the reality is that is a form of partiality. I mean, should Potiphar's wife have been believed when she accused Joseph? No! The facts of the case are what determine guilt and innocence, not the demographics of the participants. Proverbs 18.13 says, if one gives a verdict before he hears the case, it is foolish and shameful. 
It's as if Solomon wrote a proverb for our day to address this very issue. But our media does this all the time and it does influence the courts. Media will often influence what happens in a court of law. Judges should hear a case. Judges should hear the facts of the case and rule according to the law. They should not base their verdict on the demographics of the participants. Justice is objective. Truth is objective. Truth is not male or female. Truth is not rich or poor. Truth is not black or white or Hispanic or Asian. Truth is truth. And justice is justice. And truth and justice are the same for all of us. The same standard holds for all of us. Identity politics is a way of regarding others according to the flesh. Remember where Paul the Apostle says, we regard no man according to the flesh. But identity politics is all about regarding others according to the flesh, using fleshly categories. Identity politics keeps a record of wrongs, however micro or trivial. Identity politics soaks the flames of bitterness and resentment and division. It builds walls between people that Jesus came to tear down. In Christ, there is justice and salvation for all. In Christ, there is no partiality. In identity politics, there's only justice and salvation for some. Because there is partiality. Now, I know there's a lot of complicated and thorny questions that come up with this, how to deal with different things. And I I can't go into all those things here in this sermon. I'm happy to talk about them more. But what I want to do now is shift gears. And if James is telling us what it should not look like, Then I want to ask, what should it look like? And I want to point you to Matthew chapter 18, to the teaching of Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus gives us a description of what justice in a court looks like. Here he's describing what it would look like in a church court, but of course that can serve and historically has served as a model for civil courts. Not all of what Jesus says in Matthew 18 would apply directly to civil courts, but the principles Jesus teaches us here show us what justice looks like and how justice and mercy fit together. He shows us how to resolve disputes within the church in a just and merciful way. It's interesting that the section on church discipline in verses 15 to 20, uh, those verses are preceded by the parable of the lost sheep. And these really go together because that's what church discipline is. It's, it's about going after the sheep who has strayed. And the goal, of course, is always restoration. It's always the restoration of the offender. It's what Jesus calls gaining your brother back or winning your brother back. It's about returning that straying sheep to the fold. As Jesus describes this process, yes, it, it, it does or becomes a judicial process, but restoration, reconciliation, righteousness, peace, these are always the goals of the process. It's a process saturated with patience and mercy. Forgiveness is always on offer to the one who has sinned. That door to forgiveness is never closed. So Jesus says, he starts out this section saying, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault In private. So important there. Jesus says, if he listens, you've won your brother back. So clearly the way Jesus describes this, there's not to be any gossip about what your brother has done. You're you're not to gossip about it to others. You're not to go spreading rumors. You're to go directly to the brother who has sinned. And you're to give him an opportunity to repent. You lovingly 
and humbly confront him in his sin. And if he repents and the process is over, hallelujah, there's reconciliation and restoration. Depending on what the sin is, and especially if the sin is a crime, there may still be temporal or earthly consequences to his sin to deal with. But he's restored as a brother. He's forgiven. If he doesn't repent, the process escalates. And so Jesus says to bring in two or three witnesses. This is a legal rule. Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 19. Two or three witnesses are brought in to ensure the fairness of the process. This is where it becomes more formal. These witnesses obviously are to examine the case. If you can't get two or three witnesses to agree that there's a problem, then it's got to end there. These two or three witnesses have to agree with you that there is a problem that has to be dealt with in this kind of way. And this is really where due process comes in. The witnesses are going to investigate the case. They're going to determine, is this brother really in sin? Is he really unrepentant? They're going to cross-examine the participants of the case to verify the facts of the matter. And if these two or three witnesses determine, yes, this brother is in sin, and yes, he is unrepentant, if they can't convince him to turn from that sin, if the brother's still unrepentant, then Jesus says, take it to the church in verse 17. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? It's likely Jesus means take it to the elders of the church to deal with it. The elders, after all, are the representatives of the church. They act on behalf of the whole church. And bringing it to the church, bringing it to the elders, again, they have several different results. It may mean there's some kind of public rebuke or public censure that needs to be given. Uh, it may mean if the man is repentant that, again, it just ends right there. The elders will have to make that decision. They'll have to decide how fast this process moves along. But suppose the brother is still unrepentant. Suppose he refuses to listen even to the elders of the church. What happens? Jesus makes it clear. He can no longer be considered a brother. He has to be excommunicated. That's the word we use for putting someone out of the fellowship of the church. He's out of communion with us. And so we simply have to acknowledge that and, and, and declare that. To excommunicate him means, of course, he can't take communion anymore. He's out of communion. He can't take communion. He's not invited to partake of the Lord's Supper with us anymore. And so Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say to treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it might sound like that's really mean. Jesus is saying treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. But remember how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. This really means two things. Obviously, it means the man can't be considered a Christian anymore. That's just a matter of honesty. It would be hypocritical to continue considering this man a Christian. And so all the blessings and privileges of church membership are no longer his. But it also means this. Think about how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. He loved them. He cared for them. He evangelized them. Jesus pursued just these kinds of people all throughout His ministry. He served them. He ministered to them. He reached out to them. And so someone who is excommunicated, yes, that is horrific. And excommunication is an act of justice in this case. But excommunication as an act of justice does not close the possibility of mercy. Because see, no matter what the excommunicated brother has done, no matter what earthly or temporal punishments the state may give to him along with his excommunication, if it was not just a sin but a crime, no matter what he's done, he can be forgiven and he can be restored at any moment. 
All he has to do is repent. Note what Jesus says at the end. He says that this is, I think this should be understood as the promise he gives to the church's courts and to the church discipline process. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it shall be done for them. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. See, what kind of gathering is Jesus talking about? The same kind of gathering or the same kind of assembly that James is talking about. It's a court of the church. And so what the two are asking in agreement is for God to uphold the church's verdict. Jesus is promising He will be with the courts of the church. We know Jesus is with us in our worship assemblies, but He's also with the church's judicial assemblies. He promises to be with the courts of the church, and He promises to back up the church's decree of excommunication, even as He promises to back up the church's decree of absolution. And this is precisely why the weight of the church's discipline is so great. The, 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 the weight of the church's discipline, the church's decree. Disregarding the church's verdicts and pronouncements is tantamount to ignoring God Himself. Now that has to be qualified. It does not mean the church is infallible. It does not mean the church discipline process, the way it's carried out in real life, in real time, is infallible. Certainly not. God will always render the final verdict Himself. No doubt there are some who should be excommunicated who are not, and there are some who are not excommunicated uh, who, who should be. <clears throat> but the church's ministry and the church's courts possess real authority. A declaration made on earth backed up by heaven. And that really brings us back to James. James is so concerned with how the church functions as a community. James is concerned in James chapter 2 with the sin of partiality in the church's courts. And this is why this is such a serious sin. Because it misrepresents God's justice and it misrepresents God's mercy. It tells a lie about who God is and how He judges and how He works. The calling of the church, the calling of the whole congregation is to live out our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus. It's to put this faith in Jesus Christ, this glorious Lord, into practice. It's to obey His law and to love others. That's what we're called to do. And the whole letter of James is unpacking that. This is to happen in the worship assemblies of the church. It's to happen in the courts of the church. It's to happen in the way we engage our culture and with our neighbors in our daily lives. Our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus should be evident in all we do. The very next section is going to tell us faith without works is dead and does not save. Your faith in Jesus must be manifested in all of you. If you fulfill the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. If you pursue justice and if you practice mercy, you do well. One thing James shows us again and again is there's this really close link between our relationship with God and our relationship with people. So much so that how you treat people is really how you treat God. 
We can, we can evaluate your relationship with God by how you treat other people in your life. If you love God, it's going to show in how you treat people. And if you really love people, that's a sign you love God as well. If we love God, we must love one another. And if we want justice for ourselves in court, we should do all we can to ensure justice for others in court as well. If we want mercy to be shown to us, we should show mercy to others. And mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James' wisdom to us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for this Word You've given to us through James. Father, I pray we would not show partiality in unrighteous ways in daily life. I pray that we would never show partiality, even a hint of it, in the courts of this church or in our denominational courts. Father, we even pray that our civil courts might be protected from showing any kind of partiality. That they too might be places of real justice that comes from Your Word, that is defined by Your Word. Father, we thank You for giving us this Word to us and we thank You for the promise too of mercy. The promise that if we show mercy, we can know we will be shown mercy. Not because our showing mercy somehow earns Your mercy. That's not what mercy is. But we know that showing mercy proves we have been shown mercy by You and will be shown mercy by You. Make us a merciful and just people, full of Your wisdom, full of Your love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.